It's Wednesday, December 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Supreme Court begins hearing arguments today in the Mississippi abortion case that bans abortions after 15 weeks. There's a lot of scrutiny on what will happen with this decision, as it could overrule Roe v. Wade. There could also be a scenario where they overrule that decision while still not abolishing the constitutional right to an abortion. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, joins us for what to know. Next, there's still much we don't know about Omicron, the new COVID variant spreading through the world. We don't know if it's more transmissible, or most importantly, if it causes more severe illness. Preliminary observations show that it could cause milder infections. If so, that could be good as we get on our way to the virus being endemic. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News, joins us for the bottom line. It will take weeks and more data before we know. Finally, the midterms haven't hit yet and no formal announcement has been made, but speculation is already swirling on who could be former President Trump's pick for VP if he should run again. There are three lanes that he could pick from, a woman, a person of color, or even a consigliere type. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for the two most important factors, loyalty and embracing his views on the 2020 election. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think that it is likely that the court is going to hand an enormous defeat to supporters of of abortion rights, potentially including explicitly overruling Roe. Joining us now is Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Let's talk about the big Supreme Court action on Wednesday. They're going to be hearing a case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This is the Mississippi abortion law. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about what's going to happen when they finally deliver their ruling. They could overturn Roe v. Wade. They could do something that uh, basically overrules it without overruling it. There's a lot of different possibilities that can happen with this. So, Ian, what are we expecting to see? Well, this is the single greatest threat to abortion rights since Roe was decided in 1973. You know, we have a court that has a six to three Republican majority. The presidents who have appointed most of these justices have promised to appoint justices who overrule Roe v. who will overrule Roe v. Wade. And I'm inclined to believe them. I think that there are some questions about what the opinion will say. The court may not actually use the words Roe v. Wade is overruled, but it could still put in place all kinds of abortion rights that have the same effect as overruling Roe. And I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think that it is likely that the court is going to hand an enormous defeat to supporters of, of abortion rights, potentially including explicitly overruling Roe. Now, the Mississippi law would ban abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And you make a point that the question in this is very important. The very specific question presented in this one is not should Roe v. Wade be overruled. It's about pre-viability prohibitions on abortion, whether those are constitutional or not. So that's why there could be this thing where they basically overrule it without specifically saying those words, as you mentioned. To dive down into the weeds a bit here, whenever the Supreme Court announces it's going to hear a case, or at least that it's going to give it full briefing and oral argument, it also announces something called a question presented. And the question presented is the specific legal question that the court intends to resolve. 
The question presented in this case, like you said, is whether states are allowed to ban abortions prior to the point of viability. Viability is when the fetus can live outside of the womb. And the answer to that right now is no, they absolutely cannot. That was the holding of the court's decision in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that prior to viability, if you are pregnant, you have an absolute right to terminate the pregnancy. So this First of all, is the court is asking directly, should we overrule Casey? Should we overrule this part of Casey, which says that prior to viability, there could be no bans on abortion? But second of all, if you get rid of the viability line, it's not entirely clear how much of Roe is left. I mean, someone has to decide where is the line. And if, it's, if the court isn't going to say that we're going to set the line at viability, what does that mean? Does it mean States get to determine when the fetus is viable. Could a state say that the or could a state say that it's going to ban abortions after the first minute of pregnancy? Right. So you know there is this time period. You can ban abortion after this. You can't do it before it. Is the core of the abortion right? And if you take that away, it's not clear to me what how much is left. When we're looking at things, Justice Anthony Kennedy was so key in upholding Roe v. Wade. He's retired now. We know the lean of the court now the leans more conservative. They have this precedent of not really overruling past rulings, but there's all sorts of political implications. You know, what happens if they do overrule it? You know, a lot of people are going to start <laughs> speaking pretty badly about the Supreme Court. There's so much that's going to happen in these decisions. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I mean, this is the most conservative Supreme Court that we have had since the early days of the Franklin Roosevelt administration. Like the the last time there was a court that was this right wing, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. So we don't know quite yet how far these justices are going to go. But I'm anticipating that they're probably going to go pretty far. And, you know, the biggest evidence for that is the fact that, you know, this particular case out of Mississippi involves a a ban on abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. There's another law that probably a lot of people have heard of, SB8, the Texas abortion ban, which bans abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. And the Supreme Court has allowed that unconstitutional law to go into effect. They have said, even though Casey is still technically good law, and even though prior to viability, people have an absolute right to terminate a pregnancy, they have allowed this six-week ban, which clearly violates the rule in Casey, to go into effect. And I just can't imagine why the court would do that unless it intends to overrule Casey. And the distinction is very important, right? If they do overrule Roe v. Wade, let's say, There's a dozen states that have these trigger laws you mentioned in the article that will basically automatically ban almost all abortions if they overrule it. So getting those specific words, if that's the way they rule, is supremely important. Yeah, I mean, it does matter whether the court uses the words Roe v. Wade is overruled, because as you said, a lot of states have these trigger laws where the minute the court says those words, abortion is is banned in the state. But I wouldn't exaggerate too much how much that distinction between a case that explicitly overrules Roe and a case that really finds a backhanded way to eliminate abortion rights. If you don't have a right to an abortion, you don't have a right to an abortion. You know, if the court hands down some extremely complicated, you know, lawyered within an inch of its life decision that doesn't use the words Roe v. Wade is overruled, but that erects a bunch of procedural barriers that make it impossible for anyone to bring an abortion suit. That's still basically the same thing as overruling Ralph. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. 
All right. Thank you. We're going to learn a lot more in the next couple of weeks about the lethality of this virus, about the, how much it spreads, about whether what we have can control it, et cetera. Joining us now is Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, thanks so much. Let's talk about the variant that everybody is talking about right now, Omicron of COVID-19. Now, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about this. President Biden was speaking the other day and said, this is a variant of concern. We shouldn't uh, be panicking over this just yet. And that's true. There's so much we don't know about it. Chief among things is we don't know if this variant causes much more severe illness in people. And that's what everybody's looking at. It could be more transmissible. It could evade the vaccines a little bit. All that stuff will bear out. And it's going to take a couple of weeks, actually, a few weeks to really get more data on all this. So this is really what we're talking about here. And from what we're hearing from some doctors so far that have been encountering this is that it might cause milder cases of COVID. So, Andrew, what do we know about this so far? Yeah, so some, some South African physicians who are actually seeing this have said that the patients they've seen are generally mild cases. And that's true that as of now, but... I think a lot of experts would say, like, you know, we need to see a lot more patients to get any sense of what if whether the severity of symptoms broadly changes. And so, yeah, and we need a little bit more time to see, uh, you know, the trends in hospitalizations and deaths because COVID for a lot of people is a mild illness. And so it could just be that these are the patients they're seeing. The patients that the South African physicians have reported seeing have been generally younger who are, as we all know, are, are more likely to have milder illness. So there's a couple other factors at play here. And we just need to see, I think, more patient data and a little bit more time to know. Tell me about the difficulties with all that, because let's say you get COVID, you get a test, it's confirmed, you know, for people that have mild cases are probably going to stay home. Who knows if that goes on to get sequenced by a lab somewhere. Maybe some people just get sick and stay home and never see a doctor or get tested, you know, so it's so tough to pit the two, you know, the, the variants against each other and see which one is much more severe. Right, because so, you know, a virus, like everyone knows, is, is evolving and it can influence its transmissibility. It can influence how it reacts to like our immune responses. But in theory, it can also become more or less virulent, basically cause less or worse disease on average. That's a really hard one to pick up unless, you know, if it's a dramatic change, like no one's going to the hospital or everyone's going to hospital, you'll pick that up more quickly. But if it's a subtle change, it's really hard to pick up in part because there are so many other things that influence patient outcomes. Like, you know, if you're looking in a certain area, like what is the rough age demographics of the people? Do a lot of people have underlying health conditions that make them more vulnerable to COVID? You know, what's the healthcare capacity like? And, you know, at now there's the other thing that we're seeing is that in a lot of places, there's a lot of population immunity out there, whether from vaccination or prior infections. And so that might mean that if you have that level of protection, from past exposure to the virus or from being vaccinated, maybe you can't block the infection entirely, but you're going to have mild illness. So this could be also be a relic of that because South right. Africa's had pretty s substantial waves of COVID already. And that's the exact point, right? The, what we're seeing in South Africa with them is they have had those waves. This Omicron variant is happening in younger people. So we have yet to see how it really affects older people or people that have those comorbidities. You know, there's a lot still at play. That's why it's, you know, everybody's talking about it, but it is, you know, uh, there's no need to panic just yet. We don't know enough about it. And even with the Delta variant, when we talked about that, obviously that was responsible for 
some of the big waves that we just had recently, even that one, the jury is still out on whether it caused more severe illness. Delta's biggest threat was how transmissible it was. And, and actually, transmissibility is kind of the thing that scientists worry about most because a more transmissible variant will cause more cases and thus more illness and death than like even a, a variant that causes just like more severe disease like right. on an individual basis. That, but That's just a numbers um, game at that point. Yeah, exactly. But to your point, yeah, so there were some studies, and again, this just kind of goes to how hard it is to study this if it is a small difference. Like there were some studies that showed countries had higher hospitalization rates during Delta waves. And, and, you know, a lot of doctors said the patients they were seeing seemed to be getting sicker and faster with Delta. But, you know, other studies came to like to find that there were no differences between Delta and earlier waves. So it's kind of, yeah, it just kind of goes to show that like it's pretty hard to know for sure because these are difficult things to study in the environments in which these variants are spreading and in the fact that the variants are often spreading not at the same time. Let's say people are getting a much milder illness from this new Omicron variant. Could that be a good thing? Could we be on our way to this virus being endemic, something we live with, something more of a common cold rather than the pandemic that we're currently in? Could this be something that is a positive almost, I guess? We're moving past it now. If these cases really are mild, or if a greater percentage of them is mild, let's say, because it's probably not going to be 100%, that would be a great thing. Whether that means that the virus has changed to become just like cause milder illness, or because it would show that prior exposure to the virus or vaccination is turning this from like what can be a really serious infection into generally more of a mild infection. And that's how we kind of move, as you said, towards endemicity, as opposed to like this acute emergency that we've been in now for almost two years. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. We will win back the House. We will win back the Senate. And we will win back in 2024 that beautiful white building, sometimes referred to as the White House. Joining us now is Mark Caputo national political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, everybody's talking about President Trump running again in 2024. The conversation that's been going around right now is who might he pick for a potential vice president to run on the ticket with him? And largely what people are saying is that he's not bound to anything this time around. Last time when he picked Mike Pence, it was for very strategic reasons a safe decision, let's say, this time around, it doesn't matter. He can do whatever he wants. There's probably only two things that are important to him, loyalty and if you are on board with what happened in the 2020 election, as far as he tells it. So, uh, Mark, tell us what we're seeing with this. One of the things we like to talk about in politics are lanes. And usually we talk about people running for president. There are different lanes, let's say, in the Republican Party. If Trump doesn't run, like what do those lanes look like? There's the all Trump lane. There's the somewhat Trump lane. There's the never Trump lane. Right. But we think that Trump is going to run. So the question is, what would the lanes shape up to be? What would the baskets shape up to be for Trump to make his decision to pick a running mate? And just talking to a bunch of folks, about a dozen who talk to the president, who have talked to the president, or probably the former president, who know Trump's thinking, they say they, they kind of see three lanes here. There's a lane where you're talking about a history-making African-American candidate to join Trump on the ticket. Another lane or another basket would be a woman, not quite as historic because, remember, Sarah Palin was chosen by 
John McCain to be his running mate in 2008, and obviously Kamala Harris is the first woman vice president. And then the third lane is this, what one person called the consigliere lane, the counselor lane, like just kind of a trusted advisor, a super chief of staff type. And that's generally how these Trump insiders, Trump world folks see the three different baskets forming, the three different lanes for Trump to kind of pick from or for these kind of candidates to run in. Now, I'm like, the African-American lane, the, the name you hear the most is Senator South Carolina. He's raising money hand over fist, and Trump really likes him. Like, uh, in our political story, we uh, quoted someone who had seen the two interact and said, yeah, it was a very positive Mormon interaction. In the, the lane for women, two names surfaced up. Marshall Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, a uh, U.S. senator, and then Kim Reynolds, who is the governor of Iowa. She also has a little bit of a advantage, you know, if you want to have someone in the Rust Belt, someone in the Midwest. She would kind of fulfill that. In the consigliere lane, in the council lane, we're talking someone like Rick Grinnell, who was his acting intelligence chief, or Mike Pompeo, who was a CIA director and secretary of state. Those are just kind of some of the names and some of the lanes that are coming up right now. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an interesting consideration, though, too, because when former President Trump says or is telling people he's going to be running, it freezes the field, really, for anybody else that might have those presidential ambitions. The other name that's been floated around a lot, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, let's say if Trump didn't run, seems like he might be a shoe in for the GOP there. And even in the Trump circles, they float his name as a potential running mate just because he's pretty popular. Although there's uh, some other, I I think you noticed some constitutional issues possibly with running with somebody from the same state. I don't want to get get into too many specifics about the quirks in the Constitution because it's boring and I'll probably make some sort of mistake as a result. The bottom line is that in the original constitutional system, the two top electoral college vote getters would become president and vice president. And then that got changed so that you could kind of run on a ticket. But the vestige of that old electoral college system still kind of remains embedded in the Constitution. So if someone winds up from the same state as the president, if a running mate does, and it's a close election, that vice presidential candidate might not actually get the electoral votes to become vice president. And then it becomes some sort of complicated situation. It can wind up ultimately adjudicated by the U.S. House is the best guess. So, yeah, but as for Ron DeSantis, a really interesting dynamic between him and Trump. Trump actually floated DeSantis's name as a vice president. So Trump is obviously thinking about who his vice president might be. But a lot of people who understand Trump's thinking think that Trump actually said that to kind of put DeSantis in his place. Because in the GOP, DeSantis is becoming more popular in some quarters than Trump himself. And there's a little bit of kind of eyeing the young energetic young Turk, the young upstart from Trump, like he's the old bull. So this was kind of widely seen as Trump sort of hip checking DeSantis a little. Uh, A lot of the people I spoke to think that if for some reason Trump winds up picking a Floridian, which is, you know, less likely constitutional reasons that we we just mentioned, it's probably not going to be Ron DeSantis. In fact, it might be Jeanette Nunez, who's the lieutenant governor. She also has the advantage of being a Latina. She would be the first Latina uh, vice presidential running mate or vice president if elected. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was our Daily Dive.